Welcome to another episode of Axe of the Blood God, US Gamer's official RPG podcast. I'm your host, Kat Bailey. With me today, as always, is my lovely co-host, Nadia Oxford. Hello, everybody. And you know, we are entering that time of year where we all the big RPG releases have slowed down for a little bit, and we mm-hmm. can kind of catch our breath and get maybe a little more reflective about the genre. Yeah, that sounds pretty fun, actually. I'm, I'm down with that. Yeah. Uh, in the past, we've talked about uh, what makes kind of a good story in an RPG. We've talked about um, things like turn-based battles. We've talked about all kinds of things, um, In the, uh, to be honest. And this week, uh, I think we're going to talk about dungeons. And the idea that the reason I got this idea for a dungeon uh, focused RPG podcast right today is that I wrote about Persona 5's dungeons on the mm-hmm. website. And uh, I like them a lot better than three and four, mm-hmm. to say the least. Um, so that kind of like put the, the germ of the idea into my head to talk about uh, dungeon crawling in this week's episode. So we're, we're going to really kind of go deep. Going deep into Dungeons and Dragons. Yep, the kind of the history of Dungeons and RPGs. I mean, obviously, it goes all the way back kind mm-hmm. of to the dawn of the medium, like how they've evolved, like what makes good dungeons, that kind of thing. I think it'll be fun, Nadia. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. I uh, hope we get to talk about our favorite dungeons, too. Before we do that, how far are you in Persona 4 Golden, just out of curiosity? Are you almost done? Uh, I'm actually, like, I'm in the last dungeon, and I've been playing quite a bit, but th- that last dungeon keeps kicking my ass. <laughs> it is kind of hard, isn't it? And the final it boss is. is pretty tough, too, so I-, I look forward to your thoughts. This is not a formal Persona 4 Golden Report. No, that I was hoping I would have one, but uh, no, it's just too many enemies using, like, instant death attacks against me. <laughs> this is more of a Persona 4 Golden update. Yes, a, a .5 update. Yeah, I want to play more Persona 5, but I have this problem where I'm being kind of schizophrenic about the games I play right now. Mm-hmm. Because, like, I don't know, I got a whole bunch of games, just kind of just kind of came into my mailbox. Um, a couple of RPGs that I need to be playing. Um, like, there's Dawn of War 3 just kind of sitting there, and I really want to play a little bit of that, because I like Warhammer a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to play through the event in Heroes of the Storm. Uh, that'll give you <laughs> Overwatch skins. Oh, yeah. And, but you know what I've been playing in lieu of all of that? I, I want to play Super Robot Wars, for God's sake. But you know what I'm playing in lieu of all that? I'm going to guess Zelda. Wrong. I'm really? not even playing Zelda. Oh, I'm my god. I'm playing goodness. my stupid baseball game. <laughs> Is that uh, MLB The Show? Yeah, MLB The Show. Like... On Sunday, like, I was feeling kind of crappy, like, I was sitting on the couch, I wanted to play a game, but Persona 5 felt a little too overwhelming, like, like too much work. Mm-hmm. So the next thing I knew, I was, like, playing baseball and, like, putting together, like, the ultimate Twins roster and then deciding that I was going to go win a World Series with it. And so now I'm, like, on this weird quest to play through all 162 games in a season. <laughs> <laughs> it's so time-consuming baseball is time consuming and it is so separate from work but it's all i want to play right now so once you get into the zone and you just kind of fade out do you do you kind of accompany it with some beer just to make it a real authentic baseball experience (laughs) if it were an authentic baseball experience it'd be me sitting in the sun falling asleep (laughs) are you like homer i never realized how boring this game is i mean just a little bit uh i used to love baseball but um you know Baseball, I think, 
in a weird way should have an appeal to RPG fans because, I mean, if you think about it, heavily stats based. Oh, God knows. It's all stats. It's all stats now. Turn based. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Uh, like, I mean, you have like discrete sections and that kind of thing. You have outsized personalities. Mm-hmm. Uh, when he was alive, George Steinbrenner was essentially like a final boss. Like he was like <laughs> the one winged angel of baseball. So, which is all to say that MLB the show totally relevant to the interests of the people who are listening to this podcast. I totally agree. Even though, uh, baseball does not interest me in the least. Um, even though the Jays are supposedly hot. Yeah, the Twins are going to be terrible this year and <laughs> have been for the past seven years, but they're not as terrible as they were last year, so that makes them semi-watchable. But I do I, like, uh, oh, I, I was going to say, I do like watching it with my father because someone will pop up and someone will miss the pop-up catching it, and my dad will say, there, that's why they're, they're paid the millions. Well, most of our hockey teams are done, so. Yeah. Um, I have no sports until uh, maybe October or maybe, <laughs> no, until August when the NFL season starts. But that's neither here nor there. What is here and there is an article by Ian Bogust, um, who I, I th- he wrote an article that I think pertains to the interests of RPG fans. Oh, yes. um, and, and that's why I wanted to bring it up in this podcast. He argued video games are better without stories that is literally the headline mm-hmm. and nadia uh that like seemed to touch a nerve because you wrote a pretty heated response on the site so i'll, I'll let you kind of um sum up his argument then sum up your argument yeah uh sometimes when i when i read a thing like that i i turn into that little cat the little shit posting cat that bangs on the keyboard uh that's my shit posting mode but um <laughs> Yeah, I just think it was, uh, I mean, I read through the whole thing thinking, okay, maybe it's just a sensationalist headline, but no, he pretty much means that, like, basically his gist is story and in games deri- uh, deprives uh, gameplay, basically they don't do well with each other, with one another, and when they're separate, they do, they're do. they so much stronger as, as individual elements. Uh, his argument is that why do we need story in games if we have stories and books and movies and they tell those stories so much better? Well, it's the same reason I don't feel like reading a book when I want to watch a movie or, you know what I mean? It, it, experience a sto- experiencing a story through a game is so, is so different that that whole comparison, the whole argument is just totally bizarre to me. Hmm. Yeah, his argument, I think, is that games are too hung up in telling stories in the traditional way and mm-hmm. uh, should be trying to find new ways to tell stories rather than aping kind of movies. Um, and I, I think that's actually kind of an unfair statement, perhaps, because I, I think there are plenty of traditional narratively driven games that have had really interesting experiences. Um, I, well, he he also apes on uh, or harps on um, Bioshock, which is a game that lets you kind of experience the story the way like at your own pace through the, those recordings and that gives you an indication of what happened to, to Rapture. But then he, he criticizes that for saying, oh, well, if you go around collecting these these tapes, uh, then it negates the game's whole message of, you know, a man chooses, a slave obeys. And it's like, well, first of all, no one's forcing you to collect the stupid tapes. Number two, if I am not engaged with a game, I can turn it off. No one's sitting there taping my hands to the controller. It's a, it's a dumb argument. Hmm. You're getting really heated about this, Nadia. I can feel the heat (laughs) coming through the microphone. So I'm going to throw a hot take out there. Uh, I think most video game stories are really bad. 
Oh, yeah. See, that, that's the thing. I don't disagree with that. I don't disagree that the game stories need um, a lot of improvement. But but go on. Sorry, I didn't mean to try to over your uh, point there. I was going to say that, uh, I mean, look at just what was announced yesterday uh, with Call of Duty World War Two. They're literally just doing Band of Brothers again. Mm-hmm. Right? I mean, look at a lot of um, RPG stories. Like, you look at Dragon Quaging Age Inquisition. Like, it has its moments. But, I mean, it's really... They borrow so much from better sources mm-hmm. a lot of the time. Like, Bioware, like Bioware, Bioware borrows so much from better sources. Everybody in the games industry seems super hung up on, like, a few pieces of source material, like Star Wars and that kind of thing. And uh, I think that, I don't know, the the games industry could benefit from being a little more better, a little better read. I oh, I totally agree with that. But yeah. to be completely fair about it, uh, fantasy just borrows from each other, period. <laughs> sure. I mean, everything is Tolkien. Everything is Star Wars. Uh, God, um, for a while there, the, one of the hottest books was uh, Aragon, which is just a terrible, awful oh, book. I mean, Star Wars, fantasy Star Wars. It is fantasy Star the Wars, dragons. not even good fantasy Star Wars with a dragon in it. That was hot 10 years ago. <laughs> yeah, that kid's still writing. And I'm calling him a kid even though he's 20-something now. Is he? Yeah, he's he's getting he's getting older. Is he still with his parents? <laughs> <laughs> I his don't parents know. I think he might. Got him the publishing deal. Yeah, they. Uh, you can tell. Christ. Hey, hey, you know, like more power to him. If I could get rich off a publishing deal that my parents got me, I totally would. I'd be off this podcast in a hot second. Adios. And I'd be lonely. Oh, <laughs> I know, you could do it just fine. Um, it could be acts of the Dragon Quest cast. <laughs> I can sit here and read my fanfic out to everyone. So here's, so here, like I have a few thoughts actually. Um, one thought is that when I played Firewatch, I did not feel like that was a game that could just be easily replicated in a movie because mm-hmm. so much of that was predicated, first of all, on kind of the choices that you were making. Um, mm-hmm. Like you were quietly defining this main character's. Um, backstory like right at the start and then as the game progressed like so much of it is important that you are seeing everything through his eyes and like it's a like a kind of a forced perspective and so many stories like you have stories that have a kind of a forced perspective and everything but Mm -hmm. very few are as effective as video games in putting you in a character's shoes right and rpgs doubly so yes right because you play a game like Skyrim, like it's funny that he was, uh, one of the first things he says is a long-standing dream is that video games will evolve into interactive stories like the ones that play out fictionally in a holodeck. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, that's kind of for me what happened in Skyrim because yeah. I am essentially in what feels like a holodeck, I can play out my own stories. I can, mm-hmm. in the case of Fallout 4, build up my own uh, fortresses. I can decide like how I'm going to play out my character. I can do so many things. Um, and in that way, like a story kind of evolves. And I, I suppose this is kind of besides the point of what he is saying. But mm-hmm. I do think that even if you are mostly playing out your own story, it helps to have a lot of context. Yes. And it helps to have a lot of forward direction and a story can provide that. Yeah, and uh, one thing 
that I brought up in the article and I think is really uh, the crux of his argument, even though he doesn't say it outright, is he says a lot of video game stories are written like young adult uh, novels. And well, they are, because they're going for a mass market. Exactly. And he he didn't really have anything good to say about young adult novels. And in my experience, a lot of academics don't. Mm-hmm. Um, they find them really juvenile, really like badly written, very, you know, they break all the writing rules. They sure. Not all of them, but, you know, when people think about bad teenage novels, they think about, you know, Twilight. Obviously, it's a terrible novel. Mm-hmm. But um, there's a lot of fantastic young adult novels. And to just kind of dismiss them all with a wave of your hand like that is, is really arrogant. Yeah, um, I think the thing with young adult novels is, like, people who are of a more literary persuasion, I mean, kind of see them as, I don't know, like, we might see mobile games. <laughs> it's like, play real games, i.e. read real books. Um, and But what they kind of ignore is that there is a universal experience that goes on with young adult novels. Like, there's a reason that kind of stuff like the hunger games and um uh harry potter like resonate with a Mm -hmm. such a broad audience um Mm -hmm. is that their themes are universal and they're communicated in a way that are easy to understand and relatable yeah and i will go on record saying i would i have this huge animorphs collection i would much rather go through (laughs) that again than read war and peace oh geez uh well i mean that was tolstoy right i mean russian lit Ooh. <laughs> exciting yeah um i was unlike many of my cohorts i was not an english major so i'm not nearly as literary as i would like to be but yeah um, neither am i <laughs> but in terms of storytelling and video games i've actually said in the past that i find a large number of video game stories really boring mm-hmm. um and I think when i get locked into a really straightforward telling of a game i get pretty get pretty tired of it pretty fast like i I just want to fast forward through it right i'd much yeah. rather give be given license to wander around and explore mm-hmm. um like video game stories are so they're so there to be inoffensive and not challenge you and to facilitate the power trip especially in triple a games mm-hmm. that it's just like I mean, it, why are they even there? Like, I might as well just be there to be shooting things up and that kind of thing. Like, why am I watching these cutscenes? I find that uh, Zelda Breath of the Wild did a, a really good job with mm. uh, its story. Mm. Um, because, first of all, you have Link, who is just this ancient game character. So you're automatically interested in what's going on in his world and with his story. So to have mm. him wake up 100 years in the future and everything's kind of wrecked, for that's your first step, like, oh, I want to know what happened. And not only do you have to kind of seek out the narrative yourself but you have to hunt down these very specific areas in in Hyrule where these where these events happened and uh it kind of gives you even more motivation to explore and I just like how everything kind of ties in so nicely like the landscape Zelda herself Link himself I just thought that was really well done I want to mention something by the way Mm -hmm. note that the games that Ian mentions are Bioshock Mm mm-hmm what Remains of Edith Finch. Um, he talks about Gone Home. Yes. What genre does he not mention? RPGs. He does not mention RPGs at all. Nope. I mean, just he all mentions walking Doom. Simulators. And yeah. he mentions walking simulators. Yeah. 
That feels like a tremendous omission on his part. Like, I'm how can you he... say that games don't need stories and then completely omit probably one of the most story-driven genres, uh, this side of, like, the adventure genre? Um, I don't know Ian very well at all. I don't really want to speak for him, but at the same time, getting this impression that he looks at, he would look at something like Persona 5 and be like, oh my god, this is so silly, what am I looking at? Because, let's face it, if an outsider looks into Persona 5, someone who doesn't know a thing about Persona or RPGs or even video games, they're going to say, what the hell is this? So, he knows things about games, obviously, but if he's not impressed with young adult literature, then he's not going to be impressed with JRPG stories. My point is that it gives lie to his entire argument, which is yeah. essentially that uh, stories can are like stories being told in video games are boilerplate and boring and not even particularly good. And mm-hmm. why aren't they just being told in movies? Because yeah. you can't. I mean, and he's talking about like the dream of interactive fiction is dead. Well, come on, RPGs yeah. are interactive fiction from the way that you build up your character to the way that you're picking from freaking uh from freaking conversation trees so like yeah i mean just such a tremendous omission on his part it is because if uh i don't know if you remember when we talked about our favorite boss fights some mm-hmm. weeks ago um i mentioned uh luca blight from suikoden 2 and just his heinous acts that all build up to this massive fight with him where he's just a beast you would not get that same experience through a movie or a book just that that heart pounding battle with him no or, or the Kind of the uh, the the just the closure, I suppose. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, the catharsis—that was the word that I was looking for. The catharsis of being able to beat an enemy who, like, you are kind of feeling their atrocities personally. Mm-hmm, exactly. Uh, but maybe even more broadly, like getting back to um, a, a game like uh, I don't know, Witcher Three or Persona. Um, mm-hmm. These are games where you're making very real choices that have a giant out- outcome impact on the outcome of the story. Like imagine right. if you were watching Lord of the Rings and at a certain point like you could do- you could join the you could join Sauron. Cool. Or like or uh one of the one of the fellowship could die if you like screwed up. <laughs> oh no, Sam. And you like were like, or you could choose like who you you could choose to pair Legolas and Gimli in wonderful matrimony. Oh, that's so sweet. And I I realized that I'm wrecking the story and everything. Actually, Roger Ebert made the rather interesting story, uh, rather interesting argument many years ago that video games weren't art because they were interactive. That's (laughs) right. Because they destroyed the intention of the artist or something. Yeah, and the internet lost their shit over that one, too. Which really got into, like, really thorny territory on his part. And I, I want to say that, like, Roger, is one of, Roger Ebert was one of my heroes. And so, um, like, I'm inclined to give him the benefit of the doubt on this one. But, mm-hmm. he like, his hard and fast rule of what art was was maybe a little, maybe not working so well. But I think he walked it back a bit, too. Like, he apologized mm-hmm. for what he said. Yeah. Which was very, that was big of him. I, I do think that video game stories can be vastly improved. Um, oh, absolutely. Not arguing that. But any stories of any medium can be vastly improved. When you get when you get right down to it, 90% of the stuff out there is garbage for any genre, for any medium. I, I don't always think that stories are necessary. For example, mm-hmm. I, I was just absolutely. playing a sports game, and I was coming up with my own stories just fine. Oh, On the flip so side, FIFA has a story mode now. Right, and you said it was pretty good, right? Yeah, it's decent. It's not bad. Uh, mm-hmm. It's like watching a sports movie. 
<laughs> which of course yeah but um i i i think that stories can be a good story it's solid writing can be really good for contextualizing um an interactive experience and mm-hmm. uh making you feel attached to the world and invested in it in a way mm-hmm. that is hard when you don't have any con- context right no um, i agree i think what he's also trying to say is that games should stop aping movies and try for something much more daring with its interactive experiences, which I'm not going to lie. Or I'm not going to disagree with necessarily. Um, uh, me neither, but it's not really first priority. It, I mean, now that we have virtual reality, like I'm sure people are going to be experimenting to the nines, but if I'm playing Dragon Quest, I just want to have a really good, solid story about beating evil. I don't want to like take it to weird philosophical places. <laughs> I don't know. Like, I think there is real potential in games as a medium um, mm-hmm. to give us experiences that we've never had before. Mm-hmm. And I can understand the frustration if you've been playing games since, say, the 1980s, um, where you thought maybe you imagined that a game in 2017 would be something of which you could never have imagined, and instead it's a half-baked alien knockoff. <laughs> What, Metroid? Oh, <laughs> I joking. Mean, I, lo- I love Metroid so hard. Yeah, like, so... But there you go. Maybe people who were invested... And it seems like um, Ian Bogus has been invested in the medium for a long time. Yeah, he has. Um, so I, I can understand, like, maybe the disappointment at what games ultimately became. But mm-hmm. on the flip side, I was talking to somebody just recently. Um, I was just like, yeah, like... There's a whole new crop of people coming into games criticism and game mm-hmm. the games media people who I don't think would have had a would have been able to find their way in like 10 years ago. And I'm not talking in terms of like quote unquote SJWs or whatever. I'm talking about people who have kind of a like an sort of an elevated maybe like literary or like a film criticism bent. Uh the yes. kind of people who seem to have a greater appreciation for the medium um all like all various entertainment mediums and can break them down in really interesting ways because they were attracted to games like the kind of games that are coming out now and yes i think indie games have played a large part of it i think in many respects like uh what remains of edith finch reflects that games have gotten smarter Mm -hmm. not always not as smart as they could be and it doesn't always work, but mm-hmm. I, I think that games are much more inclusive now in a lot of respects. They are. And uh, one thing Ian uh, failed to mention that I went over in my article is that there are a lot of artists and filmmakers and musicians out there who do their craft because uh, they they were inspired, at least partially, by games. Mm-hmm. Like Duncan Jones. Uh, even if you didn't like World of Warcraft, I adored Moon. That's a fantastic movie. Yeah, I think that the fact that a site like Waypoint can exist, mm-hmm. um, I, I have a lot of respect for, you know, kind of the work that uh, Austin Walker and his crew are doing over there. And, I mean, they, it doesn't always work, like their analysis. No, of course not. And, like, they're all, sometimes they can go down rabbit holes that are like, okay, guys, calm down. <laughs> come back, roll. come back. <laughs> but I appreciate that Waypoint as a site couldn't have existed five years ago. Exactly. I don't think. Um, And so maybe that speaks to games being a little smarter than Ian seems to be kind of positing. Yeah, I think so. I think games, even as he complains about them not evolving, they are evolving quite quickly. Indeed. 
Uh, but the long and short of it, though, is that he doesn't even mention RPGs. I mean, how can yeah. you not mention RPGs when you're talking about stories? I mean, come on. Yeah, that was very silly. You're absolutely right. All right. Uh, let's leave Ian alone. <laughs> I think he's been having a rough couple of days. And, I mean, I have nothing personal against him at all. Just I thought it was a dumb take, and I had to I had to do the shit-posting cat thing. The blood god has finished raking him over the coals. The blood god is merciful. Somebody else who's been getting raked over the coals lately, Atlas... Um, mm-hmm. who, uh, so let's see, Atlas, um, as we discussed in the previous episode, uh, greatly restricted the streaming of Persona 5, mm-hmm. um, and to the point where like you couldn't even take screenshots, and one of the most annoying things about that game, or, okay, not the most annoying thing, but one of the more annoying things is that when you get a trophy, it always it is immediately followed by screenshot cannot be taken. <laughs> Just to remind you, rub that salt in the wound, please. So you got to buy like an Elgato or something to be able to capture uh, pictures. Barring that, or barring that, literally use your cell phone. Wow, what is this, like the early 2000s? Well, uh, Atlas has apparently uh, changed their streaming restrictions just a bit. Mm -hmm. um, And have actually kind of apologized. Aw, but they've eased up, and now streaming is now only prohibited after the in-game date of November 19th. So when things start to hit the fan, I would assume. Yeah, pretty much. Um, as Katie says, when the game spirals into its final act. So they're still restricting streaming. You cannot mm. do a total Let's Play, but you can play up to stream up until 11.19. And by the way, the share button is still blocked. <laughs> Just that last final thing. By the way, the share button still doesn't work. Uh, okay, I appreciate Atlas like getting a little bit with the program, but uh, I also think that this whole thing is ridiculous, and people can kind of make their own decisions about whether or not they want to be spoiled. Yeah, I think so. Uh, as we said at the time, it's one of those self-pleasing things, right? So mm-hmm. I, I don't know why Atlas is coming down so hard on this. Um, my understanding is that the Japanese side has a huge amount to do with it. Yeah, I'm um, surprised. I, I don't think atlas usa particularly wants uh to block people um or to come after people this hard and have said that they don't necessarily want to come after them with con- mm-hmm. copyright claims even though they said earlier that they did <laughs> mixed messages guys uh, i was gonna say i kind of wish japan would realize this is really the first time i've seen persona get so much mainstream attention um so to really block that sharing especially like screenshots which are like the number one way you know, games kind of get out there by word of mouth. It's just really not helping anything. Well, Persona's getting all this mainstream attention because of our podcast, clearly. Oh, of course, 100%. <laughs> We're, you're all welcome. The Persona 4 Golden Report is blowing up, everybody. <laughs> We're going mainstream. We're going to get one of those cable TV channels, like, at 3 in the morning, give the Persona Golden Report, like, behind a, a pedestal with an American flag in the background. No, the Blood God's going to get a public access channel. yes. I just totally imagining him sitting in his mom's Mom <laughs> Blood Gods on TV right now. Oh, let's talk about RPGs. That would be a lot of fun actually. Um so the reason Persona five is blowing up the way it did is because Persona three and four were extremely well regarded. And the reason mm-hmm. Persona four didn't get maybe didn't get as much that much more attention was because it came out at a very different time. Mm-hmm. It came out in late two thousand eight. Um wow. And I, I don't. I just don't feel like 
there were as many opportunities to cover kind of niche Japanese RPGs at that time. Yeah. And moreover, it was on the PlayStation 2, which was ostensibly dead by that time. Yeah, that was a big reason, too. Yeah, So, but in that time, you know, of course, it developed a very loyal cult audience, and mm-hmm. which really pushed up the hype tremendously for, for Persona 5. And by the time Persona 5 came around... Finally, in 2017, oh my god, the longest wait. I cannot believe I waited that long for Persona 5. Um, obviously, we had social media, like in a way that we simply did not have in 2008. We had um, YouTube and streaming and all yes. of these different things. And way more like, or just different websites. And like the media culture completely changed. And so there was just way more space to spend a lot of time talking about a game like Persona 5. And that's why it's penetrated the mainstream consciousness in a way that the previous games have not. Because yeah. there's room when a game is really good, it's going to get really good word of mouth for the most mm-hmm. part. Yeah, it's very interesting. Like, it's a very interesting sort of case, uh, case study. Uh, just kind of making that comparison between Persona uh, 4 and 5. Uh, yeah, I, I kind of like looking back on games like that and just kind of observing not only how the games themselves have changed, but how society has changed in between. Yeah, it's changed a lot. Don't mm-hmm. kid yourself. Like, just in five <laughs> years, it's changed insanely. But uh, the the problem with, of course, the flip side of that is that the noise is such that mm. if there's something even a little bit wrong with a game, like, people are going to seize upon it and, like, shriek, you know, kind of at the top of their lungs about it. I make a website persona 5's localization mm-hmm. um I, I i don't have that much issue with the website i actually think it was pretty respectful yeah um, i i actually enjoyed my i i enjoyed reading it yeah I, I thought it was a lot more respectful than some of the media uh criticism that came with it absolutely um and also some of the fan criticism um uh, but yeah so uh, the media environment giveth and the media environment taketh away but oh yes my my point is, come on, Atlas. <laughs> Let the streaming restrictions. Give me a break here. I agree. All right, let's talk about dungeons, Nadia. Ooh, kinky. So, Nadia, what was your first memory of going into a dungeon in an RPG? Like, what was it Dragon Quest? It must have been Dragon Quest. Yeah, I think it was Dragon Quest. Uh, and there could, because it's actually interesting how in that game, there is a dungeon very early in the game. And it has no enemies, but it's just there to kind of let you get the feel of what a dungeon in that game is like. Because back then, you needed torches, uh, unfortunately, to see. Uh, and you would go around the dungeon, and you would eventually find the like uh, the tablets of Erdrich, quote-unquote. And there you would kind of, like, get your assignment, as it were, which is to find this item, that item, and beat the Dragon Lord. So that was the first dungeon I remember going into. Um, and, yeah, it was um, it was dark. <laughs> yes, uh, I mean, obviously, dungeons come from the very dawn of the medium, when... Mm-hmm. Back in the days when Dungeons and Dragons first came around, uh, Dungeons and Dragons had the name Dungeon in them. Mm -hmm. And, of course, Dungeons and Dragons took a lot of cues from Token Mm -hmm. um, and Lord of the Rings. And, Mm -hmm. of course, Lord of the Rings probably gave us 
maybe our first RPG dungeon, as it were, in the mines of Moria. Yeah. It's, well, even now we go dipping into mines. So, yeah. Like our vision of a dungeon is pretty much the mines of Moria, right? Um, yeah, you're absolutely right. That's interesting. That has a like a, an entrance that's kind of hard to get into. And then they finally manage to get in. But then everybody's dead and it's spooky and atmospheric. And for a time, there's nothing happening. But then, oh, wait, here they come. Tons and tons of orcs and goblins Ooh. and like a fight for your life. And then at the very bottom of that dungeon is the, uh, well, the Balrog. Uh, like a huge, and that's a boss. <laughs> terrifying demon is essentially a boss, yep. right? Takes yep. out one of your party members and you finally escape into the light. I mean, that is an RPG dungeon. That is. 100%. Although, um, I have to be honest, I didn't read Tolkien until much, much later in my life. Uh, mm-hmm. I started fantasy with uh, Dragonlance, which is literally a series based on a game. Dungeons and Dragons, obviously. But So you really had that whole dungeon exploration thing going on in spades. Well, Ian Bogus doesn't like that one. Oh, I'm sure he doesn't. <laughs> He's shaking his head right now. I'm telling Just you. Just picturing him reading it. The, the elf's <laughs> lips were voluptuous. Is that what this says here? Voluptuous? I, read, I think I read Forgotten Realms before I read Lord, Lord of the Rings. I think I read mm-hmm. Pool of Radiance. I haven't read that one yet. I'd like to get into a Forgotten Realms someday. I just remember that I had a lady who accidentally takes a potion and becomes very muscly. <laughs> That's awesome. Uh, I really enjoyed it at the time. It was great. But um, yeah, no, I read Lord of the Rings when I was like, I don't know, 13 maybe. Um Oh wow, that's uh that would have been way too uh I, that would have been way too young for you to understand it. At that point, I was reading like Eyes of the Dragon by Stephen King, and even that I was having a hard time with. The upshot of all that was that a lot of future game developers were reading Tolkien, you know, in the 1960s and 1970s. And when Dungeons and Dragons came around, what are you going to do? Yeah, you're yeah. going to make your campaigns kind of based on Lord of the Rings, right? Yeah, and absolutely. Then, um, in turn, when it came time to start making video games, what did you do? You started basing your video games on the campaigns that you used to play in your Mm -hmm. video games. I mean, like, so many examples of RPG developers, early RPG developers, who basically just took their campaigns and everything they came up with and dumped them into a game. Mm -hmm. Even the guys who made Raven Software, (laughs) a shooter developer, they're making Call of Duty these days, or helping with Call of Duty at least. Uh, Their first game was a first-person dungeon crawler, and that was based entirely on their D&D campaign, which was, you know, what was D&D? Roll a character. Mm Mm-hmm grab some materials and then go into a dungeon and find you know, fight monsters and try to survive and get the loots. It's actually kind of interesting uh, how um, those early RPGs had little story beyond, hey, he, let's you know roll up some characters and go on adventures, whereas they're all based on Lord of the Rings, which, is, which has an epic story. It's just interesting how uh, we kind of skipped, the, the st- we left behind the story element for a little while there. To be fair, though, I really do kind of like the idea of just grabbing a bunch of friends and instead of going to see a movie, you go kill a dragon. I mean, those games were so early, right? Yeah. Like, you couldn't... I don't think there was enough space on the disc to include text. <laughs> I don't know. I had, really. a couple of, I had a couple of Commodore 64 games. I had one by Epix. I can't remember the name of it, but it had really simple graphics, but it had a whole bunch of text beforehand where you'd kind of input your name and try to buy stuff and have the the shopkeeper yell at you for not having enough money. I mean, this was way before the Commodore 64. We're talking about back in the days when 
People oh, were literally spec. playing on their college mainframes, right? Oh, yeah. I'm de- I was definitely a spec. One of my favorite pieces of games history, even though I don't like roguelikes particularly, is just how roguelikes sprang um, from those early 1970s mainframes. You got games mm-hmm. like Rogue and then subsequently like Moria and Hack and NetHack and that kind of NetHack, thing. yeah. And how they're like the great, the earliest examples of online communities kind of coming together. Um, how like so many like RPG tropes as we know them today kind of came out of that. Mm-hmm. Um, and those were like kind of our earliest dungeon crawlers, right? I mean, yeah. the whole point was to go down and survive. <laughs> to <laughs> get die. to the bottom, right? Yeah. Um, and it was hard. And I mean, of course, Moria was based, as I said, on Lord of the Rings. Um, and at the bottom was the Balrog waiting to kill you. Mm-hmm. And it probably would. And then if you accidentally put on the levitating shoes, you could, you know, not be able to reach the ground and then you would die of hunger. <laughs> could that seriously happen? Oh, yeah, that could totally happen. You had <laughs> to be amazing. very careful. Like, you could just get completely screwed by the identification game um, and accidentally uncover poison. Mm-hmm. Uh, or you act, like you like you can do the identification game and it's like this game will restore health or it will be a poison that will kill you. Uh, but sometimes <laughs> you just need to drink that freaking potion and hope. And and hope is right. Just hold your breath and, and hope for the best. Pretty much. So, yeah, those were the the kind of the earliest examples. We also had wizardry. Yeah, wizardry. I, I know a little bit more about. Yeah, uh, wizardry, which I mean, essentially puts you in a maze, right? I mm-hmm. mean, you're like moving through. Uh, you're just trying to s- survive again. Um, it's almost like labyrinth, I suppose. Uh, mm-hmm. Finding lots of enemies. Tell us a little bit more about wizardry, Nadia. Well, I never get to play. It. I never got to play it myself, but uh, I do know it's. Uh, God, it's the earliest of the early. Um, wasn't it programmed by? It was programmed by a woman, wasn't it? And of course, it gave rise to Dragon Quest. Yeah, absolutely. That was one of the big ones that gave rise to Dragon Quest, and uh, really kind of uh, toned, not toned down, but uh, streamlined the wizardry's um, exploration and uh, you know character roles and stuff like that. Oddly enough, um, Wizardry carried on like as a popular game in Japan, and I would actually say that it's primarily a Japanese uh, series these days. Oh, is it? Oh, yeah. I think there was a Wizardry online a few years back. Oh. It was kind of Dark Souls-y. It didn't last very long. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but I totally played it like at a games event or something like that. Um, but I digress. Uh, so, yeah. Um, dungeons in the early going, I suppose, were kind of the primary means of delivering gameplay in early rpgs like the mm-hmm. earliest rpgs you know everything was based around yeah you know, like you would start in the town yeah you would prep uh some some games didn't even have towns but like yeah sometimes you'd didn't. start in a town you'd prep you get your items and everything and everything was geared around kind of surviving your run into mm-hmm. the dungeon mm-hmm. um and as games became more complex uh so did the dungeons themselves like they would have uh, traps, kind of attrition, danger. Yes, a boss awaits at the end, um, and they were kind of the, like, kind of the most challenging aspect of um, any given RPG. Yeah, and um, it's also interesting to. Uh, I- I'm wondering if uh, dungeon crawling, you know, not only was it easy to kind of replicate your your own personal campaign in those, but uh, I guess it was also easy to program graphically. <laughs> a lot of walls. Yeah, no, I suppose, which, um, yeah, even if you look at early kind of Super Nintendo RPGs, like the the repeating tile sets. 
yeah got pretty tiresome after a while like uh i it wasn't until like i mean even final fantasy 6 had like reused assets a ton oh absolutely and um, it was actually something I wrote for One Up a long time ago. Was one of the things I really noticed about Final Fantasy VII is how how hard they worked on Midgar to make everyone's rooms just so individual. It's like these NPCs you, you see once, their rooms were all so individualized and spoke about what kind of a person they were. Uh, but yeah, you didn't have that level of detail, God, for for a long, long time <laughs> in RPGs. For the most part, dungeons were kind of like this battle of attrition, right? I mean, mm-hmm. you'd be playing through them and you'd be fighting kind of more powerful enemies than maybe you would see elsewhere. Maybe yes. if you're playing a JRPG, like more more powerful than you would see on the overworld. Yeah, I always found that really interesting. Um, God, if you want to even, if you want to say where it started, like for on the NES even, like you think about it, you go underground and all the enemies there, like, you know, they're not necessarily tougher, they're differently colored. And I always found that interesting, just... uh Let's Watch you know out you're... for the red ones. Exactly. You're up against something a little different, a little more dangerous. But, um, yeah, usually uh, if you're on the overworld, uh, say you fight a bunny, and you go underground, the bunny might be there still, but it's it's like a, a purple bunny. And the purple <laughs> bunny is standing next to a serpent with three heads that spits poison, that poisons your entire party, and oh god, you only brought one antidote. Yeah, that was a problem I ran into when I played Dragon Warrior 2 for the first time, because you had um, mel- multiple enemies for the first time in Dragon Warrior, and you had the poison status, and oh boy, they love to use that poison status in the game. And you would be underground, deep in a dungeon, and you'd have no outside spell, you'd have no antidotes, and you would die. You often I would step down into a dungeon, and dungeons are kind of like a gated thing, like a way to gate progression, mm-hmm. because you'd go down for the first time, and the first time you encounter an enemy, you have a pretty good idea of whether you should be there or not. Yeah. Because <laughs> if the enemy completely rolls you, maybe time to go. Yes. And uh, another point to bring up is, uh, in JRPGs in particular, uh a dungeon is often the place where certain uh, mercy items will not work. Like, for example, uh, magic that keeps enemies, random encounters, away from you. They usually don't work in the, as the instruction booklets put it, like dark, smelly dungeons. I mean, something like Pokemon, you can put, um, you could take the, uh, what was it, repels? I always yeah. thought, I'd always bring like 15 super repels with me because sometimes you just Zubats. don't want to fight Zubats. Yeah, one Zubat is plenty. Although, I, you know what? I think I actually avoided using repels in the caves because Dragon Warrior had me thinking you couldn't use repels in caves. <laughs> Thanks, Nadia, Dragon Warrior. You should be using the repels. Yeah, I fought a lot of Zubats. Let's just put it that way. I bet you did. Yeah. I, I bet a lot of people did. I know I did. <laughs> one of my favorite cosplays is a, a guy dressed as like red and he has a, a sign that says repels affect war off and he's covered in Zubat dolls. <laughs> They're all over his face. I think the worst thing about the Zubat wasn't that the, it wasn't the annoying cry <laughs> or nor the fact that I mean they would d- usually die pretty quickly but not quickly enough. Mm-hmm. It was Supersonic. the fact that they used leech life Yes. Which was a very slow attack. <laughs> and usually they were faster than you. Yes. And so they would be like, use a leech life. And it would only take like a few hit points off, but it would heal just enough. 
Mm-hmm. And it was kind of slow. And then if you're really unlucky, they would use supersonic, supersonic. on you. And yes. then you become confused. And you have to switch out your Pokemon, even though you want to friggin' bother. Or even worse. Or it was the same with the Tentacools, who are the cousin of the Zubat. <laughs> they're bats, but they're cousins, I understand. Uh, zoo, uh, tentacles and Zubats. Tentacles and Zubats. They're, they're everywhere. But the point of these enemies often, like these kind of, you know, these low-level enemies that you're killing are... They are forcing you to use your items, or they're, they're forcing they're you to, wear to you down. use your MP. And your most precious resource in a lot of these dungeons often is your MP, mm-hmm. because that can be used to heal, mm-hmm. um, like with a spell outside of combat, or items. Yes. Um, and so, like, a lot of a dungeon is just sweating out whether you're going to run out of items by the time you get to the end. Yeah, and it's a big problem for someone like me, because I'm an item hoarder. I always think I'm going to save this 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 stupid elixir for a dungeon, and then the dungeon comes. I'm like, well, what if I come against a harder dungeon? I'm going to keep on saving it. Yes, exactly. Um, I mean, I've been playing through Persona Five, and they're actually pretty stingy with the items in that game. Um, really, I have like a whole like satchel full of junk I'm not using in Persona Four. Though I did buy fifty adhesive bandages, so I think that helps. <laughs> I don't know where I can use the adhesive bandages. I think I have to use them in a safe room. Are they um, are they like a healing item? Yeah, I think so. I did not actually read the description. I just bought them because I had the money. Watch it be like something completely bizarre because you didn't read the description. But I'm just picturing <laughs> someone who's like horribly like disfigured because of like enemy attacks. It's like, oh, let me put a bandage on you. And you have to put on like all the 50 bandages. And this guy's just walking out covered in bandages. And then he goes to school the next day. <laughs> yeah, that's one thing, just to diver- diverge for just a second. Um, the world is ending in Persona 4, and all the kids are still going to school. <laughs> well, I mean, nobody else knows the world is ending. But there's green fog everywhere. <laughs> yeah, I mean, but nobody else knows the world is ending. People are talking about how their parents are, like, crying in the middle of Juness, and just, like, how Juness is coming to kill them. Uh, so something they should know something's going on. I wouldn't feel like studying, is what I'm getting at. <laughs> Yeah, well, I mean, finals are coming up. This is Japan oh, well. we're talking about. Oh, by the way, I aced the finals. Congratulations. That's Thank awesome. Thank you. I am so smart. You're so smart. I mean, you're so, you are the most popular kid in school, Nadia. I am now. Everyone loves me. Uh, but I think one of the things with, the, one of the things that was interesting about Final Fantasy Thirteen was that it kind of moved away from that notion of attrition in the dungeons, but in the same time, it also dispensed with everything else. <laughs> Yeah, that was a that was a bit of a trade off, wasn't it? Yeah, it was. Uh, the kind of dungeons that I like are the ones like I think Chrono Trigger has some of the best dungeons. I've it has some through. great dungeons, and that's because they're bespoke. Um, they're interesting to look at. They yes. have they use the enemies in a really interesting way. Mm-hmm. Like they can pop out. Uh, like one of my we like I already talked about this on the podcast. Like one of my favorite boss battles was the one where like you were chasing after a boss was that <laughs> Ozzy you, yeah you're chasing after Ozzy and like he's like opening up trap doors and things like that mm-hmm. to keep to keep you from getting to him until finally finally you get to him but then you use the environment to take him out yes oh that was so good that was a lot of fun oh that was amazing um and I think that works so well because Chrono Trigger uh does not 
separate out the turn-based combat from the the rest of the game. So Mm -hmm. I think that's the problem facing a lot of games is that most of the actual gameplay takes place on its own screen. Yes. So that makes it harder to incorporate the dungeons. I, I think... This is a particular problem with JRPGs, which shift to a different screen a lot of yeah. the time, as opposed to um, Western RPGs or PC RPGs, right? The, the yeah. more classical versions. No, uh, I actually adore a lot of Chrono Trigger dungeons. Um, other than Ozzy, do you? Can you think of any standouts? Mm, uh, Zeal. Is that the uh, the Ocean Palace uh, dungeon? Yeah, Ocean Palace was really good. Yeah, that was. One I, of my I sort of as feel well. like they were all good. Like, yeah. um, I specifically remember thinking that the dinosaur, like the 25 million BC or whatever, mm-hmm. 65 million BC dungeon was really good. Yeah. Is that the one in the, uh, the, ty- the Tyrannus, uh, uh, Tyrant's castle, whatever it was called? Yes. Um, and the reason is just every one of them is interesting. Um, interest, the tile sets are really great. Mm-hmm. Um, the enemies are pretty diverse. If there's one thing I hate, when I go into a dungeon, it's repetitive enemies. Zubats. Too many Zubats, too many whatevers. <laughs> like, if I'm just doing the same repetitive action over and over again to take out an enemy, I get a little tired of it. Yeah. Actually, that's one thing that's been bothering me a little bit about Persona 5 um, as it, it, when it comes to it, is that most of the time I'm doing the same action to take out an enemy every time, mm-hmm. which is by the nature of the battle system, right? Yeah. So I'm like, it's like, oh, this enemy has this weakness, so I will use this weakness. I will knock them all down, and either I will make them go away by negotiating with them, or I will kill them. Yeah, that's one thing that's actually really tripping me up in the final dungeon is uh, so many different enemies have so many different weaknesses, and mm-hmm. it's uh, it's not it's not just a matter of oh well, you target the weakness to kill them quickly. It's uh, there are certain elements or actions that they are very strong against, and they will either absorb it or throw it back at you, and you can die real quick, <laughs> as I have learned. So you you have to really plan out every battle. So here's what I wrote in kind of the notes that I, I did for this. Um, so dungeons can be kind of randomized, like Diablo and roguelikes. Mm-hmm. Or they can be bespoke, like Chrono Trigger. Um, sometimes they're just hallways with enemies, like in Persona 4, which I'm mm-hmm. eh, not a big fan, actually. Because um, then it's just like survival, right? It's just like running yeah. through... And trying to get to the end. And sometimes you just put yourself in a position where you're like, I'm just running past all these enemies. I do not care. I'm going to get to the save point. Oh, thank God I made it to the save point. <laughs> yeah, I've run away from a few battles. Just a little bit. Like Sometimes it's better just to run. Yep, I've learned that. Uh, it's even worse when it's randomized, like when it's random encounters. Mm-hmm. And you're walking every three steps. And it's just like, random encounter, random kill encounter, me. random encounter. And you're like, I will kill everything. <laughs> Um, I just remember a picture that, uh, I think it was Game Fan Magazine put up ages ago of, of, uh, what was it? Fantasy Star 4. And they just kind of took screenshots of them trying to make their way to a town that was literally, like, maybe three tile sets away from where they were standing. And they encountered, like, enemy groups, like, every single time. It was ridiculous. I remember when I started playing Final Fantasy VII, everybody complained relentlessly about the dungeons. And I didn't really understand at the time because I didn't think they were that bad. Mm-hmm. It was only like later them. that I realized, oh, they're really short, aren't they? Yeah, they, they kind of are. Although I will say that first dungeon, that first Mako reactor you take down, that mm-hmm. is one of the best mood setting dungeons I've ever been in. Oh, it's a great, it's a great intro. Totally agree. Yeah. yeah. 
Um, so continuing, sometimes the dungeons feature really complicated and interesting traversal puzzles. Yep. Um, for example, Chrono Trigger again. Mm-hmm. Um, Valkyrie Profile is another one. Um, and Valkyrie Profile is a, kind of a platformer. And yeah, that's right. There's kind of a a gameplay mechanic where you shoot these crystals against the wall. Mm-hmm. And then you have to jump on the crystals to get to places, but the crystals can act in various ways. Like if you break the crystal, it'll send you like it'll push you upward. I think. Yeah. Um, also, you can like kind of build a almost a ladder by breaking the crystals and then standing on them. So I'd probably have to see that in action to understand it. They use uh, they use them in a lot of interesting ways, but yeah, the upshot of all of it is that you just throw crystals at the wall and use it as um like a platform. I should take my mother's crystal and throw it against the wall. What are you doing? I'm use- I'm making a platform, mom. I don't think it would work very well. And I think your mom <laughs> would be mad, and I don't recommend doing that. She doesn't even have any crystal. Um, and <laughs> <laughs> she's not Breaking Bad. She's not definitely not Breaking Bad. So, uh, and as I was saying, sometimes they offer an opportunity for a bit of role-playing. Because, uh, for example, uh, I really liked in Pillars of Eternity that they had, like, these D&D-style narrative roles, right? Mm -hmm. Where um, periodically you would hit a section where it would turn to just text. Ian Bogus shaking his head. (laughs) He hates this. Text. You can feel the wind from here. I don't want that in video game. What the hell? And it changes the text, and you can change. Uh, you can choose from a variety of actions, right? Right, right. And sometimes, like the room will be on fire, and you can like try to rescue people, but maybe people get burned, and oh, they got the burn status now. Or um, it'll be like, oh, you try to lift the, uh, you try to lift the thing, uh, and then you, but maybe you don't have enough strength, and mm-hmm. you're like, you're getting burned, and then somebody dies, and <laughs> it's very nerve wracking, right? Yeah, um, that would be. Yeah, no, I, I liked that they added that D&D style kind of narrative role to it. And I would like mm-hmm. to see that in more games. I would actually like to see that in more games. Because uh, we talked about, um, I'm, I'm totally blanking on the name again. I'm, I'm so good at this. Uh, the one on 3DS that's by Final Fantasy Tactics uh, maker. Oh, yes, I know exactly what you mean. Crimson um, Shroud. Crimson that's Shroud, it. yeah. Yeah, and I really enjoyed that uh, that combination of sort of D&D-ish text with uh, the gameplay. But it's not something you see very often in JRPGs, that's for sure. No, absolutely not. Uh, so yeah, the role that dungeons play in modern RPGs. Yeah. Often they're a place you can go and grind for loots. Um, yes. And I note I specifically said loots with an S. Because <laughs> as far as I'm concerned, loots is a, is a word. I agree. Um, and I think a, a lot of the time dungeons are there for grinding. And you know what? I don't really like doing that particularly. Yeah, um... I, I enjoy grinding once in a while, just if I'm in the mood and I put on my iPod and I just listen to some music while I whittle away the hours. But something about grinding in dungeons, I find it a little boring. Um, it's because it's I guess repetitive I, action, right? I mean, yeah, it's it's a crutch. It's just a way to pad out the game time because they're like, oh, well, what are we going to do? Well, I guess we're going to make them get to an arbitrary level so that they can progress, be powerful enough to progress. But that actually ties into what my favorite dungeon is. And people are going to say I'm on crack. One of my favorite dungeons is the moon from Final Fantasy IV. Oh, okay. And that's that certainly is... memorable. What's that? It's certainly memorable. Yeah, and part of the reason I love it is because of that grinding. Because when you get into the dungeon, it's a, it's a there's several floors to get through. 
Uh, and when you get in there, the first level is it's enemies that are a bit harder than you'd find on the surface. But as you get deeper and deeper, uh, these enemies just they come out to destroy you. And you're up, literally up against bosses as random encounters by the end. And uh, not only that, but you also have the opportunity to uh, beat mega bosses for rare weapons. And uh, I just love that sense of progression I get when you go into the moon and you, you, you know, you're such a fresh-faced young warrior. And then by the time you get to the, the bottom, you have, you know, seen the face of death itself. I just like mm. that feeling of progression. Yeah, I suppose. Yeah, I can totally see that. But um, a lot of people don't like it because there is that you just kind of hit a wall and you have to stop and you have to grind for like, God, it could go on for ten hours. It depends. It's weird. I I remember thinking that I I do not remember having a hard time on the moon. Uh, I I always have to stop and grind. Although it might even be habit because Final Fantasy IV was one of my earlier RPGs and I was Did still. Did they rebalance it for the GBA version? Because when I got to the moon, <laughs> I had no problem. Maybe they rebalanced it for GBA, but I was for a minute I thought you said DS, and I was about to laugh in no, your no, face. No, not the DS version, <laughs> the GBA version. Yeah, I'm not sure about that. I can't remember to be honest with you. Final dungeons can be a pain in the ass. They're often yeah. very long, and they're filled with the most powerful enemies. And at that point, the game's just like, no, no, we're, we're not going to hold hold back any punches. Yeah, the original, the original Zelda. <laughs> oh God, I when I got to that, when I got to Ganon's uh, dungeon. Oh my god, that Great was music. so long and so crazy. It was, wasn't it? Like I just, uh, I think I attempted it myself until I gave up and, and let my husband do it. But uh, the other dungeons can be finished quite quickly. But no, that one you have to know. There's all these secret passages, and you have to know where you're going. It, it's not an easy. It's not an easy journey. I was with my friend, and he had just been collecting an insane number of keys throughout the game. <laughs> So we did okay, and we actually avoided a huge chunk of the dungeon, but it was still really hard. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, uh, I think Diablo 3 is a good example of what a modern RPG dungeon kind of looks like for like mainstream uh, kind of Western RPGs, where like you have these randomized dungeons that are just full of enemies, mm-hmm. and you're just going through and just plowing through the enemies as fast as possible. And trying to be as efficient as possible and essentially racking up high scores. Yep. <laughs> um, and so you can get the, and then hoping that you get the best possible loot and then you go rinse and repeat and do it again. Yeah. Um, my first experience with a really hard dungeon was probably uh, Dragon Warrior 3 when I played it on the NES and mm. I was still very new at RPGs. And um, there's this particular dungeon you do before you take on Baramos, who's, you know, the bad guy, but not really. Um, and it, it's really intense. And to read the instruction, when I read the instruction book, uh, they put it this way. They said, if you can't survive this dungeon, you can't survive the final encounter. So that was good logic, actually. That is pretty good logic. So, and they were yeah. right. And they were right? Like, they were right. They weren't lying? They weren't lying. Um, I, uh, one of the hardest dungeons I ever saw was, um, it was an optional dungeon in Valkyrie Profile. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Seraphic Gate. Which um, is, I think you have to, you have to play through the game on hard, and you have to get specific items, and if you do, that unlocks the Seraphic Gate, which has like these uber hard um, super bosses. And you beat them all? Oh hell no! I <laughs> <laughs> was that try. intense. Like I mean, just getting everything you needed to unlock the Seraphic Gate was really hard. 
Yeah, I have to admit that uh, when it comes to bonus dungeons that are meant to challenge you, um, I'm not so good with following up on those. No, because they're for the uber hardcore players who have like ground, grinded a ton and mid-maxed a ton and yeah. are just like thinking entirely in terms of like, how can I make the best possible character, which is a very D&D thing. Yeah, <laughs> there you go. But yeah, that's not me. Um, I, I suppose we'd be remiss if we didn't mention MMOs, um, where lengthy raids have become a popular thing. Like, it often feels like um, MMOs are just kind of trying to show off. No, our our raid is three hours long. Our, our, our raid is eight <laughs> hours long. You have to, like, actually stop and sleep. Like, literally. Like, wow. when you go to a save point. Oh, yeah, well, <laughs> our final boss in Final Fantasy XI took 12 hours for, like, the top guild to beat. So top that. <laughs> <laughs> as someone who doesn't play too many mmos um i've always kind of wanted to go on a raid but uh i mean it's a okay so i've done a couple raids i did one and i did a few I, I did a bunch of star trek online mm-hmm. and at this point mmo people are already shaking their head because the <laughs> raids in star trek online are not very good but they can be gratifying in the sense of when you go in you already know exactly what's coming at you Mm -hmm. for the most part. Like there aren't a lot of surprises usually because probably like you've done a few runs before and when you decide to go in for real and you're serious and you've got like a real group with you, like you know what each encounter is going to entail and exactly how to uh, tackle it. Mm-hmm. And you are all working together and it's like, okay, do your role, do your role, do your role, do your role. And, hopefully you survive long enough to win and then scream Leroy Jenkins and it becomes like a battle of attrition because the enemies take forever to kill what do you kill like a bunch of Klingons um well I mean mostly it was Borg really that makes sense so you'd be fighting the Borg like the Borg were the end game enemies in Mm -hmm. um, the vanilla version of Star Trek online and the the annoying thing was that you'd be shooting them and they would adapt so you had to recalibrate your phaser um periodically to be able to continue to do damage which took mm-hmm. some time and so and just being able to take on the dungeon usually required getting end game gear which right. required like a lot which required you to uh play through other instances um like other like raids to be able to get enough chips or something that you could eventually cash in for the rarest loot I'm actually picturing like Star Trek final armor was that like a thicker shirt no like you could wear like really cool like cybernetic attachments and stuff like that and like you had some really neat looking um tons and tons of neat looking phaser rifles and that kind of thing so that's cool although if you have cybernetic attachments you get stages of the borg hey look i'm already one of you you'd have the um there was the mako armor and like a whole bunch of others and like some were really good against the borg and some were other good against others like you could assimilate your ship with like borg stuff like the borg armor set which looks pretty rad actually which i totally did (laughs) uh but uh yeah mmo raids are a thing and have actually started to be incorporated into games like destiny Mm -hmm. where like you have like the vault of glass and that kind of thing um and then of course you also have a game like edgy odyssey which is i mean just it's based entirely around the maze um, and trying to get to the top, essentially. Yeah, and that's really not my cup of milk. Like, I just 
don't like mazes very much. That's how I, one of the reasons I've never got hardcore into games like Wizardry is just, uh, I, I have a terrible, terrible sense of direction, even when I have a map in front of me. They are kind of exhausting, aren't they? They are. Like I always, when I like, I spent a lot of time playing Persona Q. Got kind of bored by the third maze. Yeah, that's like a whole bunch of like you go through a labyrinth or something. Yeah, no, it's totally a labyrinth, and you're like slowly uncovering the map. Mm-hmm. And yeah, then no, thank you. At a certain, and you know, you're trying to find. And you're like you're mapping your way through, mm-hmm. trying to survive. It's like pure survival, and trying to find your way to the next level. And like it's just about getting deeper and deeper and deeper into the dungeon. Right. So. Uh, and plenty of people like I mean the resurgence of roguelikes in the past like five to seven years like they're based entirely on that right like get to mm-hmm. the next level without dying yeah pretty much and I think people who are really into that just find the challenge of survival really intense and interesting and for them that becomes their, its own brand of storytelling yeah and more power to them I can see where they're coming from really quickly I would just want to talk a little bit about what we like to see in dungeons. And I suppose we should start with you, Nadia. What do you like to see in dungeons? I like to see cool loot. I like to get the the sensation that I'm going to a dungeon for a reason. I'm going to this mm. dark, smelly, awful place to find something cool. If I go into a dungeon and I don't find a cool weapon, I'm going to get pissy. Oh, yeah. No, that feeling when you get all the way to the bottom and you beat the boss and the boss explodes into tons of loot and then but there's the big treasure chest yes and you open up yes. the big treasure chest and the big treasure chest has uh, a really big sword or a really <laughs> kick-ass piece of armor and then you see the little arrow pointing up and it's like plus 30 to your, <laughs> all your stats and you're like yes look at all that green my that, stats are that... so much better and then you put it on and even better like Maybe it looks really cool, and you're like, uh-huh. oh, my character looks so much better now. Yeah, that touches all my happy spots. <laughs> yeah, no, that is that is a great feeling. And actually, that is, uh, you know, kind of part and parcel of what you get in a game like Diablo, right? Where, mm-hmm. Or, I mean, also Fallout, where you um are kind of diving in to get the po- best possible loot. Yes, that's something why that's you're going. Something, whatever, whatever treasure lies beneath. <laughs> it's, a, it's a really nice sensation to just dig that up why was the enemy holding it who cares it's yours now but it also gives you a real like sense of accomplishment right like, it really so, does yeah, i got the the badass thing yeah absolutely even better if it's a, an uber hard optional dungeon oh yeah but uh as i said before i'm not very good at those <laughs> in skyrim um there's the mages college side quest oh yeah i did that which is quite long um you have to go through like it's a multi-quest quest chain it's actually one of the better ones in the game Mm -hmm. and it culminates in a really long dungeon (laughs) but it was a good dungeon um and it was one of those intense kind of battle of attrition like just try to stay alive kind of dungeons um that culminates with you fighting like this revenant archfiend thing at the bottom um and i think i literally sat in the rafters and shot arrows at it until it was dead <laughs> that sounds like my uh that sounds like my battle plan it's a good strategy works, it is it works pretty well in skyrim <laughs> it's it's pretty much your uh, great go-to strategy for skyrim yeah but then like the best thing about fallout or skyrim is like when an enemy dies and it's just laying there and you can <laughs> immediately start pilfering everything on it 
Yes, you take all their clothes. You take their clothes and their weapons and all of the change in their pockets. And then they're naked in front of you. And you're like, hmm. <laughs> and you're like, ha, ha, ha. I could bury you and give you your Or they turn into a won't. hunk of meat. That's true. Or they just disappear. Usually they fade away. So the what I like to see in dungeons is a sense that I am embarking on a dangerous task that I need to prepare for. Mm-hmm. That I'm like, okay, now, now it's it's time. This is like a, this is a major like uh, undertaking. I need to have everything, or else I'm not going to survive. Like getting all the food, getting all of the items that I need. Like gearing out my my uh, characters. Yep. Like equipping all of the best stuff, and essentially like preparing to go to war. Yeah, absolutely. I think a good example of that is Darkest Dungeon. Oh, yeah, I'm sure it is. <laughs> it's one of the first things you do in that game. Like, because, of course, Darkest Dungeon, it's in the title. Like, literally, mm-hmm. you're diving through dungeons. You're trying to survive. Um, and you have, like, rotating parties. But, you know, sometimes you're, like, you get your be- very best party, the party that you are most confident about because you're about to go fight a boss. And you load up with, you spend some money to load up on items beforehand. And mm-hmm. you have to think about, like, okay, how many, like, um, how many bandages should I bring? Yeah. How many um poison things should I take? Because if I get like poisoned or or like bleed or something, that will infect my character's sanity, and I will have a harder time. Oh, jeez, what a game! How many torches do I need? Because if the light goes out, sometimes that can be beneficial because that gives a better chance maybe of uh, surprising enemies, but they also might surprise me and I'll yeah. be in deep trouble because that will rearrange my entire party. Yes. Um, that feeling also kind of plays into Persona. Mm-hmm. So like when you're diving into say, like when you're preparing to go on a run in Persona 4, like you're like going, I mean, you go out and you buy like a whole bunch of new items and a whole bunch of new weapons and yeah. everything. And you're like, okay. This is it. We're going in. We're going to beat this dungeon now. I, I like that feeling. Like this feeling that the dungeon is an obstacle. Yeah. To be kind of overcome as opposed to like something you have to traverse through. <laughs> I actually kind of think of it as a, almost like a project because what I do is Ooh, uh, I, I like kind of uh, I fight enemies till I get to, I don't know, say four or five. And then I go back and I sell my junk because that gives you sometimes, that sometimes gives you stronger mm. uh items that you can buy back uh and i'll if i have like a, a quest going with the fox i'll i'll finish that up so that he'll give me a discount when he heals me in the tv uh sometimes he gets in a pissy mood though and he won't do it but Stupid uh fox. yeah i, I forgot like, the fox will heal you he'll he'll heal you i love unless, the fox unless he's in a bad mood because he can be in a good mood and, and charge you a very little amount or he can be in a really <laughs> bad mood and charge you like dungeons obviously can come in all shapes and sizes um sometimes but I think the best dungeons maybe are the ones that feel just kind of unique mm-hmm. um, that have a character to them and aren't just a a cave yeah. or a tile set. Actually, you know what one of my favorite dungeons is? Which? Ultimecia's Castle in Final Fantasy VIII. I never got there, but uh, is that... Um, that's not Lunatic Pandora. No, that's, a, that's something else, but... Uh, no, uh, it's the final dungeon. Yeah, yeah. Actually, one of my favorite sequences in any game ever is when you're traveling through time because of time compression with a K. (laughs) 
with a K. Um, and everything gets really messed up, right? Like, mm-hmm. like the the screens getting all crazy, and like you're running through different sequences, and you're seeing different things, and like the cutscenes throughout the game are getting mashed together. And then the next thing you know, you're fighting like a snake witch <laughs> and like a time vortex to really good music. Like you do. Yeah. And then when everything finally, when you defeat it and everything fades, you find yourself in the future or something looking at this badass castle with some like dead seed members like there. And this really awesome music starts playing. Mm-hmm. And um, it almost feels like you're in Dracula's castle or something. It's like <laughs> old school horror movie when you go in there. And the interesting thing about this dungeon is, first of all, it's really like complex and it's mm-hmm. big. But also, you do not have you, all of your stuff is locked. Like all of your abilities are locked, and you have yeah. to unlock them as you go by defeating bosses. Yeah, I kind of like it when dungeons do that, uh, as long as they don't get too unfair about it, obviously. but uh, They can get a yeah. little unfair about it, yeah. Um, I, like, but I like that. You can decide to just go take on Ultimecia, essentially, without any of your abilities unlocked. Mm-hmm. And lose. Oh, jeez. Totally and lose, lose. yeah. Because <laughs> Ultimecia is like final, like, she has like four forms or something like that. Yeah, it goes on for a while. She takes a while to kill. <laughs> <laughs> to say the least, like... Even when I was, like, maximally powered, like, her final form is not that, is, it takes a bit, takes a mm-hmm. few, um, takes a few uh, lion hearts to take her down. <laughs> anyway, that's uh, been kind of our discussion of dungeons. Uh, dungeons, you know, that's a big topic, so I'm sure it's one that we can revisit at some point in the near future. Yeah, dungeons but, are uh, big. Uh, I'm curious, like, uh, why don't you send me an email or a message and tell me what your favorite dungeon is, and also tell me what you like to see in a good dungeon. Uh, drop me a line at cat.bailey at usgamer.net, or send me a message at usgamer.net, or, you know, just tweet at me, and I may read your message on a future episode of Acts of the Blood God. We'll make you feel special. <laughs> In the meantime, Axel Blood God is the US Gamer Podcast. You can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever podcasts are sold. Follow me on Twitter. I'm the underscore catbot. <clears throat> you can also find Nadia at Nadia Oxford. And of course, follow US Gamer on all of the usual social media accounts. That would be US Gamer Net. Nadia, you, you, you've been writing a whole bunch on the site. Like, is there anything you want to promote? Well, there's the the article we talked about today, which I, I think is serves well as an evergreen piece because I talk about uh, games and stories in general. Um, what else have I written lately? Oh, I re- I just recently wrote a a thing comparing uh, Dragon Quest Heroes Two to Dragon Quest Builders. Which, which spinoff should you go for if you're like into Dragon Quest? Which um, spinoff should you go for? Yeah, it's a bit nichey, but I think it's very informative. I'd say DQ Builders. Oh, oh yeah, DQ Builders one spoilers. Oh my God! Well, now we have no reason to go read the article. Oh, you should read my you should read my articles. I, I try to make funny words. Yeah, go read the article anyway. <laughs> Pays the bills. It does. Um, I think you should go check out Jeremy Parrish's uh, design and action column, um, which he does every month. Every month he takes on a new game. Right now he's he just wrapped up a uh, Legend of Zelda: a Link to the Past. Mm-hmm. It was pretty great. Which is fairly relevant. I mean, we kind of grandfathered in Zelda as an RPG. Yeah, I agree. And uh, I'll fight anyone who wants to argue it with me. All right. Very well. (laughs) (laughs) 
I got my my brass my brass knuckles on. All right. Uh, we'll see you again next time. And for Nadia and myself, um, thanks for listening. And until we hear you from you again, happy adventuring. <laughs>